If you will, turn in your Bibles to the seventh chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember as we've been watching the life and ministry of our Lord, how the ministry, Jesus' public ministry, just continues to grow. It is centered in and around the region of Galilee, and, and Jesus is going from town and village to the city, and he is preaching the gospel. He is setting up the kingdom of God, and he is inviting everybody into that kingdom. And what does that kingdom look like, and how does a person enter into that kingdom? And, and so Jesus has been teaching those things. We saw in the Sermon on the Plains how He gave the Beatitudes uh, again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their unrighteousness. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those uh, when people say unkind uh, things against you. And, uh, And so setting up the kingdom and teaching us about those principles of truth. You'll remember that he gave the woes also and said, woe to those who are just seeking their fulfillment in the things of the world. In other words, woe are you when the temporal existence fills you up and you are giving no thought to your eternal existence when you are blinded by the here and now from the important the important issues uh, of your soul and and then you remember that he taught us about the currency in the kingdom of god that the currency in the kingdom of god is love and that love should continue to grow and be fruitful in a person's life, that as you continue to mature as a believer, that there should be more and more love coming out of your life, more and more love for God, more and more love for others, and that love would continue to increase. You'll remember that he taught, don't judge. Remove the plank in your own eye so you can take the speck out of your brother. And then ultimately, what did he do? He said, and now it's up to you, God. God allows us free will. He has poured forth the truth now. And we can either take the truth of God's word and we can use that to pour the foundation for our life or we can discard it. But he said the person that discards truth and builds his life on anything other than truth, when the storms and the trials and the problems of life come, then that house will fail. But the person who builds their life upon the sure bedrock of God's truth, the storms and the winds and the fury of life's difficulties and hardships face you, that house will stand. Your life will stand. And so... Ultimately, it is up to each and every one of us how we are going to build our life. As we come to this seventh chapter, we're going to see that Jesus has been going around declaring these truths and the crowds continue to to gather, to be able to, to hear through, to cut through the noise of culture and philosophy and the wisdom of man to hear the resounding clarion call of truth. And and Jesus is going to enter back into Capernaum again. Capernaum is the capital of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee. It was no small town or village. It was the, the largest, most populated city in Galilee. It sat right there on the Sea of Galilee. And not only did it have the huge fishing trade and industry that was there in Capernaum, but 
also it was right next to the major trade route. And so we see that it was a, a major important city. And that's where Jesus' public ministry was centered there in Galilee. And so he is going to return once again to Capernaum. And we're going to see in this seventh chapter, faith is going to be contrasted. First, we're going to see a, a tremendous demonstration of faith, surprising faith. In fact, Jesus is going to marvel at the faith, but the faith isn't going to come from a Jew. The faith is going to actually come from a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, but a soldier, a Roman soldier. And we are going to see him and the insight that he had from his position in the military and his understanding of authority and how he takes now and recognizes a spiritual truth about Jesus that's going to make Jesus marvel. And so we're going to see this tremendous example of faith. And then on the other side, we're going to see a godly man. In fact, the greatest of all men that have ever been born to women, we're going to see him wobble in his faith. When what happens in your life when what you expect and how you understand God to be operating suddenly doesn't make sense any longer and you enter into that place of confusion and the enemy is thick upon you with doubt trying to pull your faith away from you and as you battle for your faith in, in the midst of uncertainty and disappointment and discouragement... How does God minister to us in, in those times? We're going to see John the Baptist has come to the end of his public ministry and, and now no longer are the crowds thronging around him as he declares the need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But instead, he has been locked away into a dungeon fortress that matures by Herod, King Herod has locked him away because he has dared to speak out against the relationship that Herod had with his wife. He had actually stolen his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist declared that that was not righteous in the kingdom of God. And Herod, not wanting to deal with negative publicity, just simply arrested John and placed him into the dungeon. And here was John the Baptist uh, now trying to figure out how he could just be left uh, in a dungeon. If Jesus was the Messiah, if he is the Messiah and he is going to rule and reign in righteousness, you remember that John the Baptist had watched as the Holy Spirit had descended like a dove upon Jesus. He had heard the voice of the Heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and as John had declared that I baptize with water, but he will baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And a winnowing fan is in his hand. He is going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. His kingdom is going to be established. And the millennial reign of the Messiah, when the lion is going to lie down with the lamb, he is going to usher that in. He is going to set that up. And his rule will have no end. And, and this is what John the Baptist, he understood these things. But, but he's sitting in a dungeon. Why aren't the walls falling down like the walls of Jericho? Why, why isn't the kingdom being set up? And did I, did I get it wrong? Am I mistaken? 
And what happens when doubt and faith come in contact with, with one another? When the promises and the provisions and, and the verses that we hold to be in truth aren't coming to be. And the enemy is quick to cast doubt upon the truth of God's Word. The identity of Jesus as our Savior. And we're going to see that when John the Baptist gets to that place where his soul is questioning these things, that he's just going to simply turn to Jesus for the answer. And we're going to see how Jesus answers that question when his disciples are sent to him. But sandwiched between these, these two stories of faith is going to be a meeting of two large crowds. One large crowd is following Jesus and, and it is filled with expectation and excitement and joy. And, and the other crowd is going to be a crowd that is filled with sorrow and mourning and lamentation. A, a tragedy has befallen a, a woman. Her son has perished. A funeral is always uh, sad to to have to say goodbye to loved ones. But it is especially sorrowful when a parent has to bury their own child. There is something unnatural about having to bury your own offspring. And so there was great sorrow in the death of her son, but it was increased by the fact that it was her only son. And then it was compounded by the fact that she had already lost her husband and had buried her husband. And so this sorrowful lamentation and this funeral procession of a large crowd is going to come face to face with a crowd filled with joy. And we are going to watch what happens when sorrow meets with joy in the Lord. Let's jump in here to this seventh chapter, the gospel of Luke, beginning in verse one. And it says, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die so when he heard about Jesus he sent elders of the Jews to him pleading with them to come and heal his servant so we are introduced here to this centurion a centurion is a Roman soldier he's an officer he's an officer who is over a a hundred men and centurions are normally noble in character and and we see that oftentimes they were the appointments given to Roman senators and high-ranking officials. It was their entry place into their political career. And, and here we see that there is a centurion that is stationed there in Galilee. And, and he is aware of Jesus. He has heard about Jesus. He has a personal attendant, a servant, if you will. But the servants' attendants were far more personal. They were more like friends and attaches. They would learn to battle together. They would fight together side by side. And he would be with them in his personal matters and, and in his affairs. And, and they had a close kindred friendship and, and fellowship. But suddenly now his, his servant, his friend, had 
had fallen ill. And that illness now had turned serious, serious to the point where now his servant was at the brink of death. And he had exhausted every other means that was before him, and he was desperate. And suddenly now he hears that Jesus has returned back into Capernaum. And he has heard the stories about Jesus, how his authority and his power to be able to heal all diseases and infirmities, the incredible miracles that Jesus had done there in Capernaum. You'll remember that it was in Capernaum in the synagogue that after he had preached that he went to Peter's house. And, and you'll remember that, that he healed the mother-in-law. But at the end of a Sabbath, how the whole town had brought all of the sick and the infirmed after he had cast out the demon there in the middle of the synagogue service. And, and everybody who brought anybody he healed and touched, and, and Capernaum was the epicenter of his ministry now. And, and so this centurion had heard of Jesus. The only problem is, is that he's a Gentile, and Jesus is a Jew. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they, they have nothing to do with one another. And, and that is, if you were just a normal Gentile, the Jews would have nothing to do with you, let alone a soldier, an occupying soldier in the Roman army that was oppressing the nation of Israel. And so he recognizes his need and he recognizes the answer, but he also recognizes that, uh, that he doesn't have direct access to Jesus. And he feels like, I will, I will send uh, some people to intercede uh, on behalf of my situation. And so he goes to some of the elders uh, there in the community, the Jews, and he asks them, will you go to Jesus on on my behalf, and will you invite him to come to my house to heal my servant? And, and so we see here that uh, that these leaders uh, now they uh, they come to Jesus, verse four, and when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Here we see the character, a little bit of this centurion, that this centurion had, had been kind and gracious to the Jews, that he had helped them to build a synagogue. We're not sure which synagogue he helped them to build or in what way he helped them, but here we see that the, the elders knew that he was a friend to the nation, to the people. And so the... Leaders, the elders, were willing to come and to ask Jesus to come and to heal his servant. In verse 6 it says, And then Jesus went with them. Notice that Jesus doesn't wait, he doesn't defer, even though this centurion is a Gentile. We see Jesus moving immediately. One of Luke's themes throughout his gospel is constantly showing 
how Gentiles interacted with Jesus. Remember that Luke is a Gentile himself. And so he's very interested in the way that Jesus interacted with Gentiles. Also, he was writing to Theophilus, who was also a, a Gentile. So one of the major themes that we'll see is the interest that Luke has in Jesus's interaction with Gentiles. Now, when Matthew's gospel, we see that he was concerned with writing to the Jews. And one of the things that Matthew does in his gospel is he constantly is quoting all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, showing him to be the promised Messiah to the Jews, that the Jews would receive Jesus as the Messiah. But Luke's gospel is considered to be the universal gospel. He's the one that writes uh, to not only did Jesus come to save the Jews, but also to the Gentiles as well. And thus salvation is offered to the whole world. And so Jesus doesn't hesitate. The elders come and ask him to go to a Gentile's house and to heal his servant. And Jesus is lickety-splickety. He is uh, on his way here with them. And it says, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. We see the centurion has employed the the intercession of the religious leaders to have them come and bring Jesus to his house but after they have departed and and they have gone the centurion rethinks it and thinks that maybe it was presumptuous of him to ask Jesus to come to his house and and so he he sends some friends now to go and to tell Jesus now that that Jesus you don't even need to come to my house. You don't even need to come into my presence. I am not worthy. He says, but just give the command. All you have to do is just give the command. And he goes on now to point out his reasoning in verse 8. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. As a military commander, the centurion is very aware of the structure of authority and, and how orders are passed down and, and how his orders come from Rome where his commander is not even present, but he just simply gives the command and, and as a centurion, he is responsible for executing that command. And as a centurion, he can give a command and does not need to actually physically be there, but that command just needs to be delivered and it will be accomplished. And he recognizes that that's the authority of man. But that Jesus also has authority and power. And in the same way that all he needs to do is to give a command, so also Jesus just simply needs to give a command. And that same power and authority underneath his directive will will be executed. I don't need you to physically come 
just issue the edict and that will be sufficient. And when Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. We see Jesus marveling now, marveling at his great faith. We find Jesus marveling only a few times in the scriptures, and, and it's always to do with faith. He marvels at great faith, and then he lacks it. He marvels at the lack of faith at the same time. Here he marvels at the great faith of this centurion who, who understood that he didn't need to be in the presence of Jesus. Now, the Jews were always trying to get into the presence of Jesus. Remember remember the, the, the friends of the paralytic and the efforts that they went to get their friend into his presence. They carried him up onto the rooftop and opened up the tiles and they lowered him into his presence. If I can just get my friend into the presence of Jesus. You remember the woman with the issue with the flow of blood and how she believed that if she could just get into his presence. and In fact, if she could just touch him. No, I don't even need to touch him. Just the hem of his robe, I will be healed. But it was always trying to get into his presence. And here was the centurion who says, I don't even need to be in your presence. Just issue the command. Just issue the command. And it will be carried out. And Jesus marvels at that and and Jesus issues the command. The edict is given. In verse 10, And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sent. Matthew tells us that his servant was healed at that very hour. And, and so we see that Jesus' healing was an instantaneous healing. That even before they got back to the house, he was healed even though he had been sick all the way unto death. And so here we see Jesus once again operating now by faith, not even having come into the presence. In verse 11, we are going to see that Jesus and his disciples, they continue now to move about. He has gathered his 12 apostles, you'll remember, and he is now pouring into them and ministering to them. And as he moves with the 12, so also do the people move as well. The crowd continues to go. Wherever Jesus is moving, they want to move with him. And so we're going to see that they come now to the, uh, to the town, to the city of Nain. It says in verse 11, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with them. And a what kind of crowd? And a large crowd. Now, Nain is 20 miles away from Capernaum. And so it is southeast now of Nazareth. But it's about a day's journey, 20 miles can you imagine walking 20 miles to hear Jesus' words? Can you imagine walking 20 miles to church? <sighs> but these people, they, they wanted to hear the clarion truth that Jesus uh, had. That cut through the noise of the culture and the philosophy of men and, 
And it was the solid bedrock upon which you could build your life. Jesus has those words, not only for them, but he has them for each and every one of us. And so this large crowd is following Jesus as he heads into the city. And it says in verse 12, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And to what kind of crowd? A large crowd from the city was with her. So we have these two crowds. I want you to see these two crowds are converging. One is coming into the city and the other is coming out of the city. The one coming out of the city, it's a a funeral. And in those days when someone passed away, they would take the body to the home of the deceased and they would prepare the body for funeral there at the house. And then they would put it into a coffin and they would lift it onto a stretcher. And then they would carry the stretcher through the streets for a body was never buried inside of the city limits, but always outside of the city. And they would hire professional mourners that would come now and they would make lament and mourn and wail. And and so the body, followed by the family, surrounded by the professional mourners, would begin the procession. And then the friends of those would enter in. And the procession would now be led through the streets as they were making their way outside of the city. If you came alongside and you came into a procession of of a funeral, you were expected to join into the mourning and to follow the the procession out to the city limits. And so the, the tragedy of this poor woman who was a widow that was now burying her son had an extra element of sorrow that was involved in it. The crowd that had gathered now was large. And this crowd is going out to bury this young man. For this woman on top of that, the fact that she no longer had a husband and the fact that she had lost her only son, then her financial future was in dire question. For women rarely had the ability to make enough of a living on their own to be able to meet their needs. And now with her husband and her son gone, her financial future would be in question as well. And so heaping to the sorrow was the problems that she would face most certainly going forwards. And so Jesus, in verse 13, it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. He has compassion upon this woman who has buried her husband and is now burying her firstborn son. Did Jesus see in this woman the echo of his mother? who had already buried her husband, Joseph, and was soon to be seeing Jesus put into a grave, her firstborn son as well. And her sorrow and her grief. And Jesus has compassion upon her. And he says to her, do not weep. 
Do not weep. Why would Jesus say that? There is nothing wrong for a mother to weep at the funeral of her own son. But Jesus is telling her not to weep because he is about to turn her sorrow into great joy. And so, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then he came and touched the open coffin. What? Jesus is always doing things that makes the whole crowd go, what did he just do? Everybody knows you don't go near a coffin. You don't touch a coffin. Why? Because a dead body is ceremonially unclean and anything that the dead body touches is ceremonial unclean. And anybody who touches anything that's ceremonial unclean becomes ceremonial unclean. So the last thing that you ever do is walk up and touch a a coffin. It's an open coffin. You remember that Jesus is always doing these things. Remember the leper? The leper is unclean, and he tells everybody, unclean, stay away. And Jesus walks up to the leper and touches him. Because, you see, God is not defiled by sin, but God sanctifies and purifies sin. And death is just a consequence of sin. And so he walks up, Jesus walks up, and he touches He touches what is unclean. You see, Jesus touches each and every one of us, and we are unclean, and what does he do? He makes us clean. He washes away our uncleanness and imparts his righteousness upon us. And so he walks up and he touches the the coffin, and and those who carried him stood still. (laughs) They just stopped. He interrupts this procession by touching the coffin and he said young man I say to you arise and here is this open coffin and this young man and Jesus just speaks to this dead young man and so he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother i want to know what he said (laughs) when he sits up and he sees that he's in a coffin and all this crowd is all around him what does he say i i have a lot of questions i also want to know another detail the professional mourners did they get paid (laughs) because they never finished the job they only got halfway through the job he doesn't actually get buried was there a contract did they get half of the money because they only did half of the job i want to know these things here but he presented him to his mother can you imagine that moment her tears of absolute sorrow as she is going to bury her son. And suddenly he sits up and Jesus delivers her son back to him. Did she ever squeeze him tighter in her entire life than she did at that moment when he was lost and now he was given back and was saved? 
And then the response of the people, it says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. No doubt to hear this miracle of, uh, of raising this widow's son brought to their remembrance Elijah when he also raised the widow of Zarephath's son back to life again. And they said, A great prophet has risen up and then no, even more than a prophet. God has visited us. God has visited us. Emmanuel. God with us. God has in fact visited us. And Jesus Christ walked on this earth to be able to show you how to walk on this earth to be able to teach you how the kingdom of God operates and to walk in its principles that he could simply say to each and every one of us, just follow me. This is what it looks like. God with us. God visited us. And so the people, they glorified God. And and in verse 17 it says, And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And so now this report goes out. It goes out that, that Jesus now has raised up this dead man. That these two crowds, one mourning and one joyful, and they, and they came together. And it wasn't the mourning that overcame the joy, but the joy that overcame the mourning. You see, in Christ all things are made new and, and the joy of the Lord will be our strength. And, and this miracle of, uh, of the raising back to life, it wasn't a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. There's a difference between a resurrection and a resuscitation. A resuscitation is bringing back to life someone that was alive and, and was dead. But a resurrection is a new life, raising up to a new life. This young man was given his life back, but one day he would die again. When we are resurrected, we will never die again. Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. When he resurrected, there will be no more death after our resurrection. But now the word had gone out that that Jesus had raised this man back up from the dead. I want you to notice with me, it doesn't say that, the, that this story went out, that this report went out throughout Galilee. Notice what it says with me, that this report went throughout all what? Judea. What's the capital of Judea? Jerusalem. This means that the story penetrated into the heart uh, of uh, Judea. It means that the religious leaders were now hearing the stories that, guess what, that Jesus uh, is now raising people up from the dead. How happy do you think they are about that? They've already determined that he is dangerous and they're already hearing about his power and authority and now they're getting wind of the fact that he's interrupting funerals and raising people back up to life. (laughs) But this story in the report now was going everywhere. And the report even went to John the Baptist, who now was no longer at the Jordan River baptizing people, but John was locked away into Herod's dungeon fortress. 
And it says, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. John is in the dungeon and he is hearing the reports of Jesus' ministry. And the raising from the dead of the widow's son at Nain comes to John's ears there. And it says, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And John is trying to make sense of his circumstances in light of what he knows to be true. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the forerunner. He knows that he himself is not the Messiah. He, he knows uh, that there is one that is coming after him. And, and he certainly believes that it's Jesus. But the kingdom isn't being set up. The Romans are still in authority. And John the Baptist is now in the dungeon and he is not being let out. And every single day he waits and instead of the walls falling down and his great deliverance, he served bread and water. And he waits another day. And the next day. And the next day. And the next week. In the next week. And suddenly he begins to wonder, am I ever getting out of here? Maybe, maybe I was wrong. I don't understand. I know that I'm the forerunner. I know that I know that I'm the forerunner, but... What if I'm the forerunner to the forerunner? What if Jesus is not the Messiah, but he's the forerunner to the Messiah? Maybe that's why I'm still in this dungeon. Maybe that's why Rome hasn't been overthrown. Maybe that's why now the kingdom isn't physically being set up. Is that it? I don't know. I saw the dove descend upon Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I don't know. I don't know what I know anymore. I'm confused. I don't understand. I don't understand. Do you ever get to that point in your own life where you just don't quite understand? We have the promises of God and we're holding on to the promises of God, but... uh, but I'm not seeing salvation. I'm not seeing deliverance. I'm not seeing provision. I'm not seeing the healing. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. When by faith I'm holding on to the truth, but by sight the things that I'm seeing are contrary to the truth that I'm holding on by faith. And, and faith and sight, are uh, they are battling out and I am waffling back and forth between the two, desperately trying to hold on by faith to the truth that I know, that I believe in my soul, but by sight it's not happening. Do you ever battle that? 
John the Baptist is. The forerunner of the Messiah battle between faith and sight in his own life. And what does he do? He goes, I'm going to Jesus. I have to just ask Jesus. I'll just ask him. Are you the promised one? Or is there another one that's coming? I just need to know. Just, just need to know. And they go and they find Jesus and they pose the question to Jesus. And look at how Jesus answers the question. And at that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. They come and they say to Jesus, Jesus, are you the promised one or are we to wait for another? And Jesus says, hold on for one second. I'm a little bit busy right now. He's healing the blind. He's healing the infirmities, the flicks. Okay, what was your question again? Sorry, hold on for one more second. And there is like this fireworks, like the grand finale of the fireworks going on of God's power just being demonstrated all over the place. And that's how he answers them. (laughs) And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You go and tell him what you see. I am the Messiah. All power and authority rests with me. And there is no other who is coming after me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And you can put all of your trust in me at all times, in every season, in every circumstance, in every difficulty. And I will rule and reign in righteousness, and my kingdom will prevail, and there will be no end. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. And they depart. As we close our study here this morning, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 7 and back to this centurion again. I just love this centurion because he, he comes and he approaches Jesus here in verse 7. He says, I didn't think myself worthy to come to you. He approaches Jesus not, not saying, hey, I built a synagogue, I've done a lot of good things, and hopefully you'll see me based on that. He says, I am not worthy. He comes in humility. And how important that, that is that we always approach our Lord in humility. There's none righteous, no, not one. And none of us is deserving. We don't come based on righteousness, but we come based upon mercy and grace of God. And we bring our need to him. And he comes and he brings that need to him. And he says, just say the word. And, and what I love is the way that that centurion believed that Jesus did not have to be present. And what really spoke to my heart is, is, 
is how important that is for us to recognize that Jesus doesn't have to be physically present because Jesus has resurrected and he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the good news is, is that he doesn't need to be here physically. All he needs to do is to say the word. Is to just say the word. And that edict will bring it to pass. And I was so encouraged by the fact that, that all Jesus needs to do is to save the word. Say the word. Just say the word. And that really brought me to that place of, have I brought my need to Jesus? Have you brought your need to Jesus? You see, so oftentimes I'm good at offering up the general prayer. God, you know everything and you know all of my problems. And Lord, I just ask you to help me in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) He already knows everything. (laughs) But you see, there's a difference between that general overarching just help me prayer to coming to the recognition that I've got issues and challenges and problems in my life that are beyond my capacity. That I am absolutely dead in the water and, and desperate for God. This centurion knew that, that he was dead in the water there. He had tried everything. His servant is dying. And now if there is not an intervention from God, here certainly his servant is going to, to die. And he comes now and he humbly brings his need. God is beyond my ability now. I have no ability. And there may be areas in your life where you are stuck. You have done everything that you can do and there and there it is. And you see, God asks us to bring that to him. To recognize that we are limited in our capacities in our lives and to bring those points of need to him and to ask him, just say the word. Just say the word. And so I began in my own life to to make a mental list of all of the areas in my life where I'm stuck, where that's as far as I can go and God, now I need, I need you to move in my life. And, and began to, to offer those up. Lord, just say the word. In this situation, in this circumstance, just say the word, Lord. Just say the word. And I wanted to encourage each and every one of us to to bring your petitions before the Lord. Where are you stuck? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in a health issue. Maybe maybe it's with your children or with your parents. Maybe it's in relationships and conflict where you've done everything that you can do and now, God, I, I need you to move. I, there's nothing else that I know to do next. But just say the word. God, say the word. And I'll be made whole. I'll be delivered. I'll be healed. The barrier will be unstuck. The relationship will be restored. 
what's dead can be brought back to life. Lord, just speak the word. And may we today bring those stuck areas, acknowledge that we we have no capacity, God. We need you to move and to ask God with all of our heart say the word and may we like the centurion may we have the desire of our faith and may the Lord speak that word and may it be so let's pray Father thank you thank you for access to you God thank you for your great love that you have for us thank you that we can bring our deepest needs to you And Lord, that you sit at the right hand of the Father even now to make intercession for us. And God, will you help us when we struggle between our faith and our sight? Lord, when when we are in that place of having to wait before we can see the fulfillment of your word. And Lord, will you encourage every weak part of our faith and that we have this day to, to strengthen us afresh, to hold firmly and fastly to the truth of your word. And Father, we thank you for your great love and concern that you have. Bless us, touch us, heal us, minister to us, God. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray.